Hey guys, this is Sharad with Recently Podcast. Super excited to have Jake McKinney on this podcast to talk about his experience in real estate investing and share his story. Hey Jake, welcome to Recently Podcast. How are you, man? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for jumping on this uh, call. Uh, just to get started, just share a little bit about kind of where do you live, what kind of investing do you do, what market you're investing in, just to kind of so everybody knows you know, a little bit about your story. Sure. So... Uh, I live in Fort Collins, Colorado, which is about an hour north of Denver, a small little town, about 160,000 people, college town. But I'm actually from Texas, so I grew up uh, in Austin, but my family is from Amarillo. And I lived in Amarillo for a long time, and that's where I really started investing in real estate. So we do a lot of different things. We have a pretty large rental portfolio. Uh, we've done quite a few flips over the last uh, few years. We've done a little bit of wholesaling, but that's never really been our focus. And and these days we do mostly creative finance. So we do a lot of um, wraps. We buy subject to, we buy with owner financing. We do um, our own version of novations, which is a little bit different than maybe how other people do it. Yeah, we, we really focus on creating notes. So we buy and sell notes. We're pretty deep into that whole part of the real estate investing space. I don't live in Colorado and you're originally from Texas. Is that where you're investing in Texas? Yes. Our, I mean, our primary markets are Amarillo and Lubbock, which is the Texas panhandle. Um, they're good markets for cash flowing rentals. So they're also good markets for the kind of owner financing strategies that we do. But but we also have properties in, in multiple states. So we have some properties in Louisiana. We we had some properties in Michigan where we just sold. And then we're, we're starting to do some flips up here in in Fort Collins. We used to do a lot of flipping remotely in Texas. And we found that for the same amount of work, we can make you know four times the profit on a single deal up oh, here wow. in, in, in Colorado. So uh, we're, no, we're not really flipping anymore back in Texas. We're only flipping up here where I'm local, but still doing all of our um, rentals and creative finance stuff back in Texas. Yeah. And then how long have you been investing for? I guess technically like 10 years. Um, okay. So I, I got my first rental property, um, which is a whole other story. I, I inherited a, a fourplex from a, from a family member that passed away. That was kind of a nightmare. So I learned all of the hard lessons <laughs> that you could learn oh, wow. on that property. And afterwards, I guess I'm a glutton for punishment because I thought that's amazing. I want to do more of that. <laughs> yeah. So what were you doing before investing? Is that like, you know, do you have a corporate job or... What was your background before that? I've I've had a few different lives, I guess. So when I was when I was young, uh, I actually went to culinary school in New York, and I worked as oh, a wow. professional chef for about ten years oh, that is so uh, in cool. different restaurants in Colorado and in Texas. Uh, I was a private chef uh, for a while, and um, got got burned out and and didn't really know what I was going to do. I went back to school and got a degree, and right about that time. Some things happened and changed in my in my family and my family. I come from a, a family of cattle ranchers, so um, third generation cattle rancher and our ranch is just north of Amarillo. And it was really going to fall on me to run that uh, our family's cattle ranch or otherwise we needed to sell it or, or lease it out. And so I moved uh, to Amarillo and operated my family's cattle ranch uh, for about, well, we still operate it, but I lived there for over 10 years operating the family's cattle ranch. Now I operate it remotely and I still go back once a month. Oh, you've had, you've had some very interesting experiences. So how did you, I'm very curious, yeah. 
how did you get started in real estate? Was it the the fourplex that you inherited that kind of you know got you started, or yeah. did you have any interest in investing before that? Oh, I did. I was always reading books, and I thought about getting my real estate license, and it always seemed a little bit overwhelming. Like I, I didn't know where to start. Uh, I, I thought you had to have a real estate license in order to do these kind right. of things, and so it was it was really the circumstance of being forced to deal with this property. And it was, uh, it was in complete disrepair. It needed a full rehab. It was completely vacant. All four units were, were vacant. Uh, so we had to start from scratch and we got <laughs> cheated out of money from contractors and we learned how to uh, rehab things remotely. And we turned two of them into long-term rentals. Uh, we kept one for ourselves cause it's in new Orleans, Louisiana. So um, in a great location. And um, and then part of it is a short-term rental as well. And we're actually transitioning a little bit into a mid-term rental right now. But yeah, mm-hmm. that was the start. It was it was forced upon me, even though I'd always thought about it and always wanted to do it. Right. So is that is that all you do now, real estate investing? Yeah, that's ninety percent of my time. Um, and then the other ten percent is still managing my family's um, cattle ranch back in Texas. But it pretty much manages itself. Uh, these days, I have great employees and have a great partner on on the cattle themselves, and so okay. uh, I get to spend all my time doing real estate investment. Cool, man. I'm curious. Uh, you said you don't do a lot of wholesaling, but you see, you know, it's pretty yeah. like um, in this business, it's pretty common for someone to just you know start out by doing a lot of wholesaling. Was there mm-hmm. something in particular about wholesaling that you didn't want to go down that path and just focus more on? like building rental portfolio and then, you know, flipping creative financing. Yeah. I think my journey is, and I hear this a lot from some of my friends who are investors that you get into this business and you have one goal in mind and then you start seeing what other people are doing. You start seeing the possibilities. You start joining masterminds and pay for courses and being all these groups. Uh, And then you lose sight of why you got into the business to begin with. So when I started, it was really just to build a rental portfolio. And pretty soon I started doing direct-to-seller marketing. And then we had so many leads. We thought, oh, let's start flipping. Next thing you know, I have a huge team and we're flipping 10 to 15 properties at a time. And we have full-time construction crews. And then there's so many leads. Now we've got to start wholesaling and I've got to hire more people and I'm hiring acquisition managers and I'm hiring disposition managers. And I grew a team to about 15 people. I scaled way too fast. I made tons of mistakes and I really lost sight of why I got into the business to begin with. Um, And so last year when the market shifted, I stripped the business all the way down um, to the bare minimum And we thought about, okay, what are the things that are the most profitable that we're doing? And what are the things that we like doing the most? And it was all the creative finance stuff that we were doing, all the creating notes, doing wraps, um, buying with owner financing and sub twos and all that kind of stuff. And the wholesale part of the business, I really didn't like very much. And I don't, I wasn't very good at it, (laughs) to be honest. And so we really changed a lot uh, about a year ago, and now our team is only um, about five people, including me, whereas it used to be about 15. 
Um, and we're, we're more profitable and we're having more fun and we're doing the things that we want to do now. Oh man, congratulations on all the success. Um, so yeah, give me, like, walk me through on like the, what's a typical deal for you with creative financing? You mentioned you, you know, <laughs> buy and sell notes. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. I, I haven't done any of that. So I'm really curious, like, what's a typical deal like that for you? It's a good question. And it's hard to answer because every one of them is different, right? <laughs> um, but I think one of the ways that we can think about it is that we can buy in a lot of different ways. And we're usually looking for a similar exit strategy. So we can buy uh, with, you know, subject to, so taking over payments on the mortgage, we can buy with owner financing, which is our absolute favorite way to do it. We have a lot of creative ways to structure deals for our sellers. Tired landlords are our favorite people to work with because a lot of times these are older investors who have a rental portfolio. They're tired of dealing with renters. They're tired of doing rehab. Um, and we can give them true passive income and mailbox money and take that over. And then we'll wrap their debt with um, another mortgage on top of it and sell to an in-home buyer, usually for more money. So there's an equity spread um, and there's also an interest rate spread as well. Um, but we can buy in other ways too. So we can buy with private money. So we're raising tons of private capital um, so that we can go out and buy these deals and we give a very consistent, uh, very secure return to our investors. Um, and then we're able to go out and wrap that debt that we're raising from private investors and do the exact same strategy and sell to end home buyers. The last way that we can do that is that we can use our own cash to buy these deals. And when we do that, we typically will do the exact same thing. We'll sell to an in home buyer. But then when we create that note, we have different ways that we can structure the end note so that we can go sell part of that to a, a note investor, somebody who's buying notes, and we can get all of our capital out of the deal, but we're still creating um, a note that's creating cash flow and has some sort of equity uh, position in it. So when that M home buyer sells or refinances, we get a nice little check in the mail for that. For the sub two deals that you're doing, I know a lot of investors that you talk to, they question about, you know, they their concern is about what the bank, you know, called the loan back. Has that ever happened to you where it was like due uh, no. on sale clause? No. Do you make no, sure? No, I've, I've never had a due I on mean, sale clause, but right. I assume that it's going to happen at some point. I don't, uh, I always plan for the worst and so part of why we've invested the time to be good at selling notes because it was a whole nother part of the business that we had to learn and implement and the same way that you build a buyer's list for wholesale deals we built a buyer's list for notes um we did that in part as protection against um due on sale clause so i don't really care if a due on sale happens because if that happens I, I have a way to get out of the deal um, and sell that underlying debt to an in-note buyer and pay the bank back. We're also raising a lot of private money. So um, I could bring a private money investor and, and pay the bank back and they could come into that position on the deal as well. And it's not to be flippant about it. I think due on sale is something that everybody should be concerned about, but I've also made every single mistake that you could possibly yeah. make on a substitute deal. And I've never had a due on sale. We're right. a lot better at it now, but in the beginning, I didn't totally know what I was doing. And I 
messed up the insurance and I messed up that and, you know, all the things that you can mess up. And I still didn't get a do on sale clause so called. So most of the time, especially in these large banks like Nation Star, Mr. Cooper, U.S. Bank, all these big bureaucracies, um, they're not looking to call notes due as long as the, the payments are being made. I want to walk through an example of, let's say, owner financing. Let's say if I'm a seller, right? And I have, yeah. I have a property, let's say that's worth about 200000 I have $150,000 worth of loan on it, let's say at 5%. Is that a deal that mm-hmm. you would buy? What's, what does a typical um, deal like that yeah. is, look like for you? I'm, yeah, just, I'm just trying to understand like, how you make There's different ways to structure it because, yeah. right. And so there's, I think one of the things that's counterintuitive to a lot of people is that um, depending on the terms that we can get from a seller, I don't really care about what the sales price is. So a lot of times we're offering people full retail, but in those situations, they're carrying their equity to us at 0% interest or 2% interest, very, very low interest rates. And so we have arbitrage on the interest rate. We don't necessarily have to have a lot of equity. Now, I would say I feel a little bit about sub twos. So I do not buy low equity sub twos um, because that to me is scary. You are backed into a corner where if the if the bank did call the note due, you don't have as many options to get out of it if you don't have any equity um, in that right. in that deal. So but for a straight owner finance deal or say a private money deal. Um, there's there's different ways that I can structure that where I can give almost full retail um, to the seller. We've we've done that multiple times because they're willing to carry their equity, and they don't have to have 100% equity. A lot of times, though, some of these sellers will have 50% equity. So we'll bring in a private money lender to let's say wipe out their mortgage because they they don't want to do a sub two. And I never force anybody to try to do um, a sub two. It really has to be a solution to a problem for someone to want to do a sub two. But so we can bring in a private money lender and let's say that private money lenders at 8% interest. And then the seller is willing to carry their equity at 0% interest. So then we have a blended interest rate of 4%. And I'm willing to give that seller almost full market retail for that because I can then go sell that deal at 10% interest to an in-home buyer. Got it. And then for you, uh, the owner financing deal, would that only work if I own the property free and clear? Otherwise it would be- No, like I said, yeah. Yeah, so if they have, usually if, and they need at least 50 to 40% equity for these numbers to kind of work. But if they have that, I can bring in a private money lender to pay off their mortgage. And then they just carry the equity. And we're right. giving them um, a small down payment at closing. Usually, sometimes nothing at closing. You know, they don't they don't really care. They care about am I going to get actual passive income? Because they've been. I'm I'm also a landlord. I, we have about 130 doors of rentals uh, across a few states, and I can tell you that that is not passive income. And the cash it's flow not. that you think you're going to get for those rentals yeah. is never as much as what you think it's going to be. Right. And a lot of these landlords are happy to get out of this deal and actually realize some real passive mailbox money. How are you finding these sellers? Are you doing like direct to seller marketing, you know, similar to kind of what a wholesaler would do, you know, your direct mail, PPC, is that what you're doing? Uh, yes and no. So it's it's changed dramatically from what we used to do. So 
back when we were doing tons of flips and wholesaling and and all of that, I was, I had a marketing budget of almost $30,000 a month. Now our marketing budget is less than $2,000 per month. And we do that specifically with very, very targeted direct mail campaigns. So uh, you know, we're stacking lists and, and, and sending direct mail campaigns to to tired landlords who also have some pain points. So those are really good leads for us. Um, and then we've done some, some PPL. We're experimenting with some Facebook ads and some PPC, very small um, campaigns, but we don't, we don't, we don't have to do any SMS and we don't do any cold calling anymore. We shut that down um, six, nine months ago. Um, we haven't done it in a long, long time. And Man, that's, that's I sleep a lot better at night. And I have a lot oh, of yeah, I was going to say, lucky you, you don't have to do any cold calling and SMS. Yeah, I, I bet a lot of investors would want to be in your, uh, in your seat right now. Who are you competing with for these seller leads? Are you competing with wholesalers who's offering cash? Are you competing with these sellers wanting to list their property? Because it's it's not it's not a traditional transaction you're doing, right? You send right. a mailer to these people, uh, to these homeowners. What are you saying in this mailer? Hey, I will buy a property, you know, with the direct mail that we send for our, you know, flipping business, where we say, hey, we'll pay you cash, closing, you know, a typical postcard that you a wholesaler investors send. Like, what are you sending? And what's your message to these homeowners? To be honest, we we're not putting as much effort into that as we should. Uh, it's been on the to-do list to do some split testing with uh, different kinds of mailers because I think we could have an even better response rate than we have right now. But all, but even just sending out a basic postcard uh, because it's such a targeted list and highly stacked, we're getting uh, at least a one percent response rate from these That's mailers, incredible. which is which is good compared to what That's a lot of people good. are getting. Um, but I think we could even be better if we were sending a higher quality mailer and, you know, doing uh, something targeted to specifically to our exit strategy and to these tired landlords, because honestly, the conversation goes really well most of the time. Once we get them on the phone, they're, they're savvy, they understand what we're doing, and we can be fully transparent with them of what, what our exit strategy is, and they're on board and, and usually excited about it. And then you don't have to do a lot of convincing on like why you should sell to us on terms rather than sell it to another investor for cash or list your property. Because I've, I've done like one yeah. owner financing deals way back, but it was just a very $25,000 deal. I'm like, yeah, I'll pay you, you know, it came out to like 250 bucks a month, but it was pretty straightforward, but you're doing this at a very large scale. So you're training your acquisition people, your team on that. Like, how does that, like, what's the biggest, you know, uh, objection you get from the seller? I, I don't know if it's a, it's an objection per se. I think when they understand what we do, it's either a fit or it's not. And the, the objections that we're overcoming, it's a lot of just negotiation. Then it just gets into price, rate, terms. I mean, they're, they're, they're usually savvy people. They understand um, all of all of these moving pieces. And so I think the the biggest challenge is just that kind of negotiation um, with someone who, who knows what they're talking about. Right. So the, the level of the conversation needs to be a little bit higher. And this isn't, I mean, you were talking about scale. It, it's very difficult to scale this business. It's, it's not a wholesale business is, is much, much easier to scale 
Um, you can train acquisitions people to have those kind of conversations. You can you can scale your lead gen much much easier. That's not the kind of business that we run or want to run. We have no intention of scaling larger than we already are, really, um, because it is almost like a um, we're, we're craftsmen, right? Each each deal is different. We're we're create we're crafting exactly. offers specifically for these sellers, and so the the only people that are talking to these people are me and my my partner Andrew, and so okay. we're not we don't we're not hiring acquisition managers we don't we don't even have lead managers we have a follow-up specialist and that's it and that's really just to make sure that we're staying in front of the people that are that are in our crm um we we are we're much more focused on the back end so finding deals for us is not hard we can find more deals than we have the ability to do what's harder for us is that we treat finding buyers the same way that other people treat finding sellers. So we run direct mail campaigns. We run um, Facebook ads. We're doing everything that a normal like wholesaler would do to find sellers. We do to find our buyers and we're building, we're constantly trying to improve our buyer database and remarketing to our buyers so that we can try to um, find the best quality buyers who have the highest down payment, et cetera, et cetera. Got it, got it. So let's say, so you get a deal, let's say you get a deal from a seller at a blended rate of 5%, right? So let's just talk about the other side of the business. Like who are you selling these properties to? Let's say you get, you know, $200,000 house, blended rate of 5%. Yeah. Okay, what are the next steps? Yeah, so the next steps are, um, we, we've experimented with a lot of different ways to sell these deals. And we've kind of come full circle to, when I first started doing this, the first one I ever did was really an experiment uh, because I had learned how to do this from an investor in San Antonio named Mitch Stevens, who's done several thousand. Oh yeah. Movies. Yeah. And so I just, I just Mitch copied Stevens, and pasted. Yeah. yeah. Like I just copied and pasted what he did because I wanted to see if I could do it and we did it. And the, the easiest way to sell these deals is oftentimes the simplest, which is put a sign in the yard post in the Facebook groups. Um, but we do some other things on top of that. So we'll do targeted direct mail campaigns to everyone within a quarter mile radius of that house. And we offer a buyer referral fee of $1,000. If you bring us a buyer, we'll give you $1,000. We've also posted them on the MLS. I think the MLS is actually challenging. It, it, it is almost a detriment sometimes because then you've got realtors in the middle of this transaction and they don't really understand what it is. And so now you have to overcome a bunch of objections from realtors. Um, and you can't have a direct conversation with your end buyer and walk them through the process. So we much rather d- directly market to our buyers and not have a realtor in the, in the middle of it. And the simplest methods are the best. I mean, we get in the beginning when we were just really pivoting to this about a year ago, it was challenging. We didn't we didn't really know how to generate leads for buyers very well. Now, if I want to, I can get forty to fifty leads per day uh, for buyers, and it's pretty pretty easy. It's it's almost like we get too many leads for for buyers these days. So your buyers are typically people that have had challenges getting traditional bank financing. You're selling yes. to them on terms, right? So you're having them put yeah. 
you know percentage of money down selling it to them and then are you like and then you're making money on the uh, arbitrage in some cases and some cases you'll have equity but are you mm-hmm. also selling this to, so you in some cases you'll sell these to other investors at a discounted interest rate and then cash out ahead of time right before the buyer buys the property yeah the, yeah the the for the for the notes um for the notes yes yeah. um yeah we we also will take our underlying debt and become and act as a hard money lender for other investors so um, right. you know our buy box now is that we don't do big rehabs i've done huge monster rehabs uh, on houses and we have done probably 75 flips in the last few years and i don't want to really be a flipper anymore um only for the specific I want to do like six high-end flips uh in, in fort collins per year where i live i don't want to do volume uh low margin flips like what we were doing in right. texas so if i get a if i get a deal into our system and it doesn't fit our buy box sometimes we'll still put it under contract with terms and then we go and act as a hard money lender uh for other investors and we're still wrapping that debt um and creating arbitrage on the interest rate um we're just we're not selling to end home buyer we're selling to another investor and it's actually simpler and easier we've probably done that about 15 times i think so so someone who's listening to this podcast uh a newer investor would you say like going down this you know route of creating financing is it is it a good you know path for someone who's starting out or would you say hey just get your feet by doing, you know, a couple of traditional deals just so that you get familiar with the real estate investing industry as a whole, and then maybe, you know, look into creative financing. It's a good question. Um, I think I, I would answer that by first saying that you need to be very, very, very clear about what it is that you want. Back to my earlier point about when I, I built a whole big, huge business that I didn't even want to own, right? And I had to strip it all down to the bare bones so that I could build it back to what it was that I actually wanted to own. And so I'm, I'm never want to tell somebody else what kind of business they should have because it's really different for every single person. Some people are absolutely wired to go out and build the biggest wholesaling operation that they can build and more power to them. That's amazing. That is not what I was put here to do. I've tried to do it and it did not work and I wasn't well suited to it and I hated it. So I think everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses and you should build the business that you want and build the business that you think you can be successful building. If you want to get into this space in the creative finance space, then I would say go slow and be patient and learn as much as you can. I'm still learning things every day. We're still we're still innovating. We're still learning new things and trying to implement them. Um, sometimes it's because the market's changing or regulations are changing. and But there's still a, a huge amount of knowledge that I still don't know, even though I've been doing this a long time and probably done, gosh, I don't know, 40, 40 to 50 different creative finance transactions in my lifetime. There's still things that I don't know. I think the only way to really learn this stuff is by doing it. I've I've bought a lot of courses and I've been a part of a lot of masterminds on creative finance and they're all useful and they're all helpful, but it's nothing compared to actually going out and doing Absolutely. that thing. Yeah. Um, no, but so I would yeah. also advise that you get a really good title company and a really good attorney on your team 
that you can ask questions to and bounce ideas off of, um, that's invaluable. You really need you'd really need a team behind you of professionals to help guide you through this. You don't want to be winging it and trying to figure it out on your own. Yeah, absolutely. Especially in like creative finance, you would want to make sure like the paperwork is done correctly. Everything is filed correctly. You don't want to, you know, there's so many different parties involved. So yeah, definitely recommend that. I'm curious, you mentioned about the like change in market conditions. How does your business get impacted by interest rate. Is it better for you when the interest rate goes up or is it better for you when the interest rate is or it really doesn't affect because, you know, you're just paying a little bit more in interest rate when it's higher, but then the end buyer is also paying higher just because it's gone up for everyone. I mean, the short answer is that everyone is impacted by interest rates. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. You're still, you're going to feel the effects of it in some way in your business. However, I, I would think that my business is a little bit more insulated from that uh, as opposed to someone who's just wholesaling or flipping um, because I kind of live outside the system. I, I don't really care what the interest rates are. I can go negotiate lower interest rates for the things that we're purchasing. And, the, and then when we're selling to end home buyers, it's really just about affordability. Can we can we sell something at a price and at a monthly payment that people can afford um, to purchase? So that's what we really focus on is, is affordability and, and really kind of living outside of the system. I don't, I haven't taken a hard money loan in a year, which also oh. feels pretty good. I used to have a yeah. lot of hard money loans out there for all of our flips. Yeah. I think it's going to be great that you can have, you know, you can have your own terms. I mean, you know, with the sellers, like you can negotiate your own terms and same thing with the buyers. You're not like, you know, set, you know, driven based on what the traditional lender is giving. You can have like whatever you can negotiate. I mean, you can negotiate 0% interest rate. Yeah, absolutely. If the seller is willing to do that. And then if you can get, you know, the end buyer to pay 10% down and then get them at 10% interest rate, and then make it like 30, 35 year, you know, because you're the bank in that case. So, um, I mean, yeah. there's like no limit to how much money you can make on it. And when they do traditional financing, you cash out on it and just keep repeating. So I think it's it's great, man. It's just, to me, it's from the outside, it seems like a very difficult business to get into. But I feel like once you get into it, once you get, you know, hooked dirty, like, man, there's nothing else I would want to do. Because you're right, you know, the point that you mentioned about owning rental properties, I own a few rental properties um, and it's definitely not passive. It's not something that you're just sitting back at the beach, you know, chilling and drinking your peanut coladas and the money's coming in. It doesn't happen like that. I had to like have my own in-house property management company just so that I could limit the number of issues that I was dealing with. So it's, it's a very challenging business. And with what you are doing, you know, feel like both, the seller that you're buying the property from and then the person that you're selling to, they're more invested into that property. So there's like less headache for you to deal with. Is that kind of what you've noticed compared to working with tenants? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, we we plan for a certain amount of um, foreclosure rate. Luckily, we've never had yeah. to foreclose on someone. We've, you know, had to send some letters and you know, get people caught up. And sometimes we're working with them because something's going on in their life. And 
we're putting them on a payment plan or something like that to get them caught up. But we've never had to foreclose on anyone and kick them out of their house, which is, which is great. And I think that that's the thing that people are most afraid of uh, with this. And and it's something that we're conscious of because I'm, I'm pretty risk averse. And so if we're doing a, a, a large number of these, uh, I, and then we've got, you know, private money that we've got to pay and owner financing that we've got to pay on, uh, I, I take those responsibilities very seriously. I would never, ever want to miss a payment to any of our lenders, whether that's a seller or a private money lender or anyone. So we need, we've stress tested this to, you know, we could be at a 15% foreclosure rate and still be able to make all of our payments and be profitable. Um, you know, 50, 15% of our people just stop paying tomorrow. We'd still be okay. Now, there could be a black swan event, there could be another COVID, and I would need to go to my lenders and say, hey, I'm sorry, we got to work something out. But we've never had a foreclosure. So, you know, if, if something happens in 2024, and the market completely tanks and the economy, we're in a deep recession, I plan on that we're going to have more foreclosures. But um, I think our business would still be strong and we'd still be able to pay all of our lenders, even if the worst happened. Um, because to be honest, the, the worst case scenario is actually ends up being profitable for us. If, if someone um, can't make their payments and we have to kick them out of their home, well, we've already gotten a, um, a sizable down payment from them. Uh, foreclosures are pretty affordable to do in Texas. And so we would have to foreclose on them and then we would just resell it and, and get another down payment. We're, we're actually net positive on that. Um, that's not something we ever want to do. We, we want people to stay in their home. We, we underwrite them properly and send them through an arm low and all those kind of things because we want to make sure that they have the ability to repay. But yeah, the, the headaches that we have on that side are nothing compared to the headaches that we have oh, uh, with renters and rental rental properties. These people are excited for the opportunity to be a homeowner. They've been shut out of the traditional banking system for whatever reason. A lot of these people are immigrants um, or they are W-2 or sorry, 1099 employees mm -hmm. we sold them multiple truck drivers um you know they make good money um but they they can't get a traditional loan because they they don't have a w-2 income so um you know i think the, the the money part is great and then there's the icing on the cake that we get a lot of emotional paychecks by putting people in oh, homes that otherwise wouldn't be able to 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 live the american dream of home ownership awesome man a couple of quick questions then we'll move on to the next section of the show What's the minimum uh, down payment that you require? We really like to get 10%, but we will we will take lower for a really quality buyer. So we have some, some rules of thumb and we can be a little bit flexible on that because we're really looking at the, the whole picture of who this buyer is. So if somebody comes to us and they're, They've got a good credit score. They've got a good job. They've been in their job for a long time. We think their ability to repay is really, really strong. We'll take a little bit lower down payment, especially if the house needs some work. That's a lot of times where we're negotiating is that we're not selling houses that are completely fixed up. That's the great thing about owner financing is that you, we want to make sure that all the systems work and it's moving ready. Somebody can move into that house and live in it. But a lot of times there's it hasn't been updated in 30 years and you know the the floor all the flooring needs to be replaced and it needs to be painted and depending on how much that rehab is uh, we're willing to take a lower down payment because 
they're going to go in and fix up the property and improve our collateral. You know, it just, it, it makes our position that much stronger when they go in and put a bunch of work into the property. Do you require them to make changes? We don't. That's actually something that we've been thinking about is uh, is putting it into our promissory notes when there is significant repairs that need to be made um, and requiring that those repairs be made. And then we would have an inspection process um, after the fact. Honestly, though, a lot of the times when we have a property that needs a bunch of work, we end up selling it to an investor instead of a, a homeowner. Okay. And uh, when you sell it to a homeowner that's living in the property who's responsible for the repairs? Uh, the homeowner. We we have nothing to do with any of that. They're responsible for all their taxes, all their insurance, all the repairs, all of that. We don't have anything to do with it. It is the closest thing to mailbox money that you'll get is owning a note. So under no circumstances would you go in and do any repairs? If the person said, hey, my furnace isn't working, AC isn't working, I can't afford and we did that you, one you time and it was really because um, they moved in and they just right after they moved in, they discovered um, there was a major problem with the AC. And, okay. you know, we just felt that it was the right thing to do. It was the ethical it, thing to it. do to go in and, and help them with those repairs because they had just moved in and they honestly didn't have the money to go, you know, spend several thousand dollars on a, uh, on that repair. So yeah, we did that. We did that for them. But that, that, yeah, that's right. the this, only this... time I can think of that we did something after we closed. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I was just curious because I've heard some investors, they make an exception. They're not very clear on, you know, the repairs. They're like, oh, I will help them with some of them. But but it's great that you have it very clear that, hey, this is your house, your responsibility, you take care of it. Um, this way, you know, they you set the expectation. So that's great, man. And, and you're right. This yeah. is as close to mailbox money you'll get in real estate rental properties they and and then also with the it, it seems like you know based on kind of what we talked about it's truly passive if you're doing it correctly and then you know you have a lot less headache and higher rate of return also so yeah this is something i need to start looking into cool man thank you for sharing your story so i have a couple of last few questions to just learn a little bit more about you what do you do for fun? Um, well, I've got I've got seven year old twin boys, so I'm oh, nice. doing a lot of things with them all the time. Yeah. And um, but I love hunting and fishing, so I'm actually leaving on Friday to go quail hunting back in Texas. Oh, nice. so I spend cool. a lot of my time bird hunting with my dog. Yeah, nice, nice. That sounds fun. All right. The book that has had the biggest influence in your life. It could be personal, business, or one for each category hands down uh rigging the game rigging so I'm, game. I'm also a member of uh, the whale club with paul sparks and steve Tring, and the certainty principles that we go through in in there are based on the book called rigging the game and it's completely changed my my whole business and my life um it's an operating system for how to make better decisions and to control the mistakes that we make as visionary entrepreneurs and all the chasing all the shiny objects and chasing more deals and more revenue and scaling wrong and all of those kind of things. Rigging the game in the Whale Club with, with Steve and Paul has been just a huge, huge impact on me, for sure. Oh, man, awesome. We definitely check that out. Yeah, that sounds like a book that I could use. Last question. If you could spend a day with anyone dead or alive, who would you want to spend the day with and why? 
I, I think I would say Charlie Munger. Yeah. Um, I mean, everybody talks about Warren Buffett, but Charlie Munger, I think, has such an amazing amount of of knowledge, not just on investing, but on what, what I was just talking about, rigging the game and, and decision making. And he has a framework for how he looks at the world that to me is pretty amazing. And getting to spend the day with him would probably be pretty incredible. Yeah, great answer, man. All right, man. How can someone who's listening to this podcast get in touch with you? What's the best way? Are you pretty active on social? I'm I'm trying to be more active on social media, but I'm not very good at it. So I'm I'm crazy. I always just give out my cell phone number. So um 806-340-1345. Text me. It's always on silent. I never answer phone calls, but I try to always get back to people that text me. If you got deals anywhere in the Texas pin handle, we'll buy them. We buy a lot of deals from wholesalers too. And we work with a lot of wholesalers to take bad cash deals and turn them into amazing creative deals. We do that a lot. And then if you want to invest in any of our stuff, um, love to have a conversation with you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jake. Thank you for sharing your journey about creative financing, man. It seems like you're doing it the right way, especially given like where the market is right now. So thank you so much for sharing that and being on the show. Thanks, Rod. Appreciate it.